Philippians 3, title of this is Pressing Toward the Goal. If you look down at verses 13 and 14 of Philippians 3, I'd like to read that with you. Are you ready? You're looking at the screen or your Bible. Paul writes, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's kind of the theme of this chapter, pressing toward the goal, reaching for the prize, what the Lord desires to do in your life. Lord, today we just ask you to do a fresh work in our lives. I think of all the things that you want to do, Lord, but Lord, help us to be ready, to be willing, to be open to the things that you want to do. We just ask for an outpouring of your spirit, that you would strengthen us, and from whatever place each of us is in right now in our lives, Lord, you move us forward. Deliver us from the past. Deliver us from the present, not to be frozen, paralyzed in fear, but we're able to lift up our head and look forward, to see a future and a hope. And Lord, maybe it's not in our circumstances, but it is always in you. And we just ask, Lord, for, for just that work to be done today. We pray. And everybody said? Amen. Pressing toward the goal. Very early this morning. Now, I confess I was up uh, very early this morning, um, 2 o'clock. <laughs> and I... I I dozed off a little bit more since then, but very early in the hours this morning, I think it was around five or six o'clock, I was thinking about driving down here. I live in Vancouver, Washington, um, and just the city of Albany, thinking about the church, verbatim church here in the mall, and I'm thinking about standing here on the stage and looking at you. And I'm thinking of looking at the seats, and I think, Lord, what is it that you want to do at Verbatim Church? Because we always have our plans. As churches are meeting around the city, they have their plans. But we are completely dependent on what the Lord wants to do and what he desires to do. If we can pull together the most amazing program ever and fill these seats, and yet there is not an impact in the lives of those people, have we done anything worthwhile? That's not a hard question. The answer is no. We're not here to fill a space in the mall. We are here to see lives changed. And as I was thinking about that, I genuinely felt this overwhelming from the Lord that he wants to do that. 
Now, I've been a pastor long enough that I've had a lot of ideas for ministry that didn't work. It's really discouraging to think of some amazing outreach or program that you're going to do. And then nobody comes. Or people do come and it doesn't really impact their lives. They go, hey, that was great. I can't even tell you the number of times I would have had maybe somebody in the church, well, hey, why don't you do this on this night of the week? Because my work schedule, I can't come Sunday mornings or whatever. Why don't we have a marriage workshop? And you know that they're struggling in their marriage. And so you think, okay, that's it. That uh, I'll plan a marriage workshop these next three Friday nights. And do you know the who, the, exactly the people who don't show up at those things? The people who asked for it. It's discouraging. I don't really want to be part of ministry that's not of the Lord. I get nothing out of it. It, 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 there's really, it. There's really nothing there to do. And yet then the Lord does something which we didn't plan or even think of. And often at a time when you're so discouraged, you barely had the energy to get there to your own event. And the Lord fills the place. People's lives are changed. And it, those times always would remind me that anything worthwhile is of the Lord. And the Lord is, it's not as if the Lord is reluctant to do those things. We often think, oh, Lord, please do a work. He's going, okay, I'm, I'm ready. As if we have to talk God into saving people. Peter said, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. You know the rest of it. God wants to do a work. Now, I often train ministry teams. I go to churches around the country, and I train pastoral staffs and hold ministry teams, and I will talk to them about, you know, some basics of ministry principles. One is that God wants to do a work. In any community, in any home, in any life, God wants to work. The work is his doing. We are not going by our programs to make something happen outside of the thing that God wants to do. But we can, by our actions and attitudes and and activities, we can hinder the work of God. We don't cause the work of God to happen, but we can certainly get in the way of it. Do you know that? I think of the scriptures where it would say, you know, Jesus went from town to town doing work in lives, whoever would be open to him, but 
it would say that, you know, he couldn't do many things in that town because they didn't believe in him. Or he couldn't do anything there. The very town where he would have the least effect was his own hometown. Because, you know, they said, well, we already know him. They already assumed they knew things about him. And so they weren't open to the very work he wanted to do in their lives. Paul was a religious man, accomplished in his religion. And yet he says, I came to that place where I need to let go of those things, his own accomplishments in religion, and press toward the prize, to the goal, toward the very thing for which Christ has laid hold of me. Now that's amazing for each of you to think, why has Christ laid hold of you? This is not just about church. I want you to think about your own life and how the Lord is or has worked in your life. There might be a purpose for your life that you've even forgotten about. You even, you even think it's over because of some tragedy or crisis that's happened in your life. And you come to church, but you've forgotten about that one thing that the Lord wants to do in your life. Now, for all of us, the goal is to know Jesus and when we know Jesus, it means to know him by experience, not to know about him like you've, somebody has told you about that person across the room. To know is to know something, not the information, but to have, had in, have contact with them. It's gnosko. It's not gnosis. It's gnosko. I know, I know my wife. Like Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's that kind of know. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? And secondly, out of that, you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're becoming, your life then starts to change. Not because of religious obligation, but it just starts to change. It's interesting how different I am now than when I got married at 23 years old. And how different my wife is. We are more like each other now. It was either that or kill each other. Our goal is then to live for him. To discover his purpose for our lives. And to live out that purpose. And again, this is not an obligation. Hey, you better do this or you're not a good Christian. That kind of message is not the message of the gospel. It's not of grace. And ultimately, the goal is to see Jesus face to face. To see him face to face. To become like him and to be with him is what the Bible calls the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling. When we lose that, then our Christianity becomes just about 
this life and getting through things now and Lord bless me and do I have to do that and that person annoys me, I don't want to see them. But you know when the Lord has worked in someone's heart because now they have hope for the future. They're looking forward to seeing the Lord and they begin to love people around them. It's really, there's no explanation except for it's the Lord. We are all pressing toward the goal. And Paul will say toward the end of this chapter that we should all have this same mind, this same attitude. And if in any way any of us does not have this mind, change it. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or if you've walked with the Lord for 50, 60 years, we are all here pressing toward the goal. We're all here doing the same thing. And we're all allowed to be goofy because that's what a family is like. And it all flows out of a simple gospel. You know that word gospel? Gospel means good news. Why is the gospel good news? Because everything else you tried to get your act together and to be right with God didn't work. It's like being sick and you tried this medicine and this medicine and this medicine and all your friends say, hey, try this. Hey, try this. And nothing works. And finally, the doctor says, this is it. What are you going to say? That's good news. You're not going to say, I can't believe, doctor, you are so narrow-minded to say, this is the only medicine that will cure me. Because God loves you, he made it simple enough to be obvious. This is it. He said to the disciples, shut up and listen. This is my son. Hear me. I think that's exactly how he said it. Peter, shut up. Hear him. This is it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son of the same nature, born of the spirit, that whosoever would believe in him, put your life in his hands, would not perish, but have everlasting life. If we make it any more complicated than that, then we have nothing for Albany. We have nothing. But if that's what we have, we want Albany to know about it. Can you say amen? Can you say it really loud? Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, as a side note, but tied into my message, because I'm working really hard to connect this to my message, my youngest daughter, Sarah, I have three, three daughters in their 30s, all have kids. I have eight grandkids. Sarah, my youngest daughter, has two little boys, Teddy and Morrow. Teddy is three. Morrow is almost four. Morrow just started uh, preschool almost kindergarten. 
at a Christian school. They're talking to him about knowing God. And Morrow says to his mom, my daughter, I don't want to have to know God. He's four years old. Talk about the will. Working it out. Do I have to love God? My daughter says, no, you don't have to. But if you don't, God loves you anyway. Well, there was thunder a night or two in Vancouver, and the kids were a little bit scared. Teddy, the younger one, three, was scared by the thunder. And my daughter set this conversation between Teddy and Morrow, a three-year-old and an almost five-year-old. Ted got scared of thunder and started crying. I made a joke that God was clapping with joy. Morrow goes, Ted, if you want Jesus, if you want, Jesus can be in your heart. You just decide and it happens. Do you feel better now? It really is that simple. If you want, Jesus can be in your heart. You just decide and it happens. I think that's the gospel. I like that. So I won't annoy you too much with grandkids stories, but that one was pretty good. Back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that we are working out. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God desires to do something in your life of his good pleasure. He just wants to bless you. You don't have to talk him into it. But he does ask you to participate and cooperate. And our part is to work it out. Not to work for it, but to work it out. He has put in us something to do, and our job is to participate in working it out. Like a child with an athletic or a musical talent, you can just see it, and yet they have to put the work in. They have to accept the instruction and do the hard work. And those things that are in them will come out, will come to maturity. In chapter 3, my plan is to teach all of chapter 3. I am not confident I will get through the chapter. But in chapter 3, Paul explains a bit more of what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first point I want you to write down is that we have to make our Christianity about the work of Christ. Rely on the work of Christ, not your work. Look at verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's your, that's your key phrase. Rejoice in the Lord. In other words, don't boast in what you have done. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, 
beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That is easier said than done. Because sometimes we sincerely want to do good, these good works for God. But sometimes our heart is in the wrong place. And we're not doing it for the Lord. We're doing it for, for other things to try and prove that we're good or to be noticed or other things. And that's pretty normal as a young Christian to have to work those things out. To be doing it for the Lord. Now what's going on here is everywhere that Paul went and established a church, when he would leave, false teachers would come in after him and try and exert this religious control over the lives of those people that had already believed in Jesus. In the Bible, we called them Judaizers. They were Jews who tried to impose the law on believing in Gentiles. They would say, well, whatever Paul taught you is fine, but we have the rest of the story. We have the rest of the information that you need to know. Take what Paul said, now add to it, and after you listen to us, then you'll be right with God. Have you ever heard that? That could take a whole lot of forms from other religions around you right here in your own community. And often there are sincere people in those religions, and that's fine. And they're, they're oftentimes sincerely trying to find God and do what's right before God. But there are often those at the head of the organizations who know that what they're teaching is false. That's what I have found out with these world's religions. They boasted that they were more spiritual than Paul, more spiritual than these young believers in Philippi. They would put on them some of the works of the law, like circumcision. Now, in the Old Testament, circumcision for the Jews was just an outward sign of an inward change of the heart. It would be like water baptism for us. We're not saved by baptism but we are baptized because we're saved. It's an, a public testimony that I have a change in my heart. That's all circumcision was. It's Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That sounds very New Testament, doesn't it? And yet it is right there in the book of Deuteronomy called the second law, Deuteronomy. Paul is stating the law a second time. And Paul, being a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, could testify that following the law didn't work. Merely being an observer of the law without a changed heart didn't work. What do you mean didn't work? It didn't deliver him from the bondage, the control of sin over his life. All of us have struggled with what we call in, you know, the Bible, the flesh. 
the, the desires of the flesh. We all have those things. No one's exempt. And we do them. Then we say, God, I'll never do that again. And then we do it again. So you don't have to make eye contact with me right now if that's you. Just look away. <laughs> We've all done it. God, that's it. I will never do that again. And then we do it again. And we think, I, I, have, I am such a disappointment to the Lord. And that could get really severe in your life on into what we call addictions. People can be controlled by sin that don't really want to be. And I promise God, I'll never do that again. And we do it again. We join religions sincerely wanting to stop and nothing stops. That was Paul or his name before his conversion was Saul. Look at verses four through six. He says, though I might, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh or his ability to be religious, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. That was a sect of the Jews that was strict in their observance of the law. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. blameless. Paul could testify this route you're going down of religious law, keeping the law. I did it and it didn't work. You know, God didn't call Paul into relationship and make him an apostle because he was good. God saved Paul because he wasn't good. He said it in 1 Timothy. The reason the Lord saved me and put me into the ministry is not because I was good, but because I was the chiefest of sinners. And God desires to save sinners, so I get to be an example of how God wants to work. How would you like that to be your testimony? I am the worst of the worst. I am your example. And if God loved me, he desires to love you. The outward observance of religious ritual couldn't free him from the power of sin. He wrote to Timothy that he was a, a violent, angry, insolent man. Not only religious and proud and hypocritical, but violent in his actions toward Christians. And suddenly, suddenly that man became the man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter that is read at weddings and so many Christian um, situations. Love is kind. That same man was the man who was out to arrest and persecute Christians. 
for us to move forward, we have to make it about what the Lord has done and not what we have done. Because you haven't done anything. I haven't done anything that can boast of anything. Secondly, that means that we have to let go of our religious traditions of the past. Verses 7 through 11, Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I have also counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and counted them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul uses the word count here two times, meaning to evaluate or to assess. Now, many of us have religious backgrounds, whether it's in Christianity or some other religion. And even in Christianity, we get caught up in religious tradition and rituals, don't we? And we pat ourselves on the back that I did this. I went through this class. I got this certificate. I was baptized. And there could be things commanded in the Bible or instructed in the Bible or never instructed in the Bible. The point is, those religious rituals and traditions don't do the job. And again, what is the job? Righteousness, making you right, righteous, which means to be in right moral standing before God. It's interesting how people who have no religious background want to have a right moral standing in life. And if they don't even have a religion in their life, they will make one. They will write their own principles to live by. It's just in us to want to have a right standing in life. When it comes to being right before God, there are two kinds of righteousness. One is your righteousness, which we call self-righteousness. We, and we say that as an accusation, don't we? Oh, you're just being self-righteous. In other words, somebody says, well, this is what's right, and I'm following what I believe is right. And that tone of arrogance and pride, you can just hear it. Jesus talked about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They were self-righteous. In other words, they had a standard, and they lived up to it. The problem was God didn't accept that standard. Whatever standard they came up with, whatever standard you come up with, which is your picture of a good person, it still is not acceptable to God. The standard which God accepts is absolute 
moral perfection. So this is the time where you say, well, nobody can do that, right? It's, it, I get a laugh when people excuse their bad behavior by saying, well, no one's perfect. I think, well, thank you for that confession. No one is perfect. I'm trying to do what's right, but no one's perfect. As if that's an out. It's not an out. It really just means if I'm going to be made righteous or right morally, I need help. That's all it means. Now, here's the, the, the contradiction. God requires absolute moral perfection, and yet no one can be morally perfect. I can't do the very thing God requires of me. So how is it going to happen? Either I do it, or it's given to me. I earn it, or it's given to me. Have you ever given somebody a gift, genuinely a gift, and they say, well, let me give you 20 bucks for that. You're thinking, I just gave you a gift, and to make yourself feel better, you want to give me some money. You're thinking, give it back. Now, God is saying, I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give it to you. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. There is nothing you can do on your best day ever in your whole life. Take your best day. Whatever you did is not good enough. And God having foreknowledge knows that. So he makes another way for it to happen. I'm going to give it to you. All I ask in return is that you receive it by faith. Faith is without works. It's interesting how many world religions define faith as good works. That's not faith. Paul talks about what, what we learn from our father Abraham in Romans 4. That Abraham was accounted righteous without works. Beginning of Romans 4. Faith is by ne- definition excluding works. So you can have that kind of relationship with God if you want. You can try. We would call that a legal relationship. And in fact, all of you have legal relationships in your your everyday life. If you have a job, that's a legal relationship. You did a job, something they required of you, and in turn, they owe you something, a paycheck. This relationship with God is not a legal relationship. It's a love relationship. So whatever you think you're doing for God, he doesn't owe you anything. You couldn't do enough to get the very thing you're trying to get, eternal life. But you can 
through a love relationship. He makes an offer to you. I'm, I am inviting you to be in my family. If you will believe on me, ask for forgiveness of sins, turn away from the life you're living, and be a part of my family, I will give you my name. And every privilege of being named as part of the family of God. Now, how is that for a great deal? How many of you have known families that have adoptive children? Right? Now, it goes without saying that we, we, we collectively, because I don't have any adoptive children, but I've had many families in my church over the years. Just talked to a good friend yesterday, uh, a couple days ago, who was my youth pastor. He has a daughter that they adopted from Romania when they were over in Hungary for a time. And that offer of adoption is not because they earned it. You chose them. And all you're asking of them is to choose you in return. And they get your name, right? And they become a legal and full member of the family with all the privileges of your other kids who are also really annoying. And it's just kind of assumed that you're going to love this child and they may have a few issues to work out. I said very graciously. Do you know God loves you? He chose you, brought you into the family, and he knew ahead of time that you had some issues to work out. And you're afraid at any moment that God's going to figure you out and kick you out of the family. Because he just suddenly got surprised at what a bad deal he got. He's not going to be surprised. He chose you as you were. And all he asks of you is to say yes. Be in my family. And we will start with a new life. With a new life. Verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The last thing I want to touch on today, verses 12 through 14, is you have to trust in Christ. Yes, you have to let go of these, these boasting of religious things you've done, but you also have to choose to press toward this goal. We're not being passive. We're not just sitting waiting for God to do something for us. We are participating in pressing toward the goal. At verse 12, Paul writes, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. 
that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I love that. He has laid hold of you for a purpose. Now I am going to press on that I may lay hold of the very reason for which he laid hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word press is the word agonizo. It is to agonize. It is like an athlete working out. This is a good thing for you to have to work out, to step out in faith, to love people that maybe you don't love, to forgive people. These are all the things that are agonizing, are working, working out of pushing forward. We are here to grow. The family of God is here to grow up children that are mature in Christ Jesus. At verse 15, he says, therefore, or based on everything I've said, let us as many as are mature have this mind or this attitude. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, let's all think this way. A beginning Christian, an older Christian, let's all have the same attitude in the family of God. Let us be of the same mind. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For as many walk, of whom I have told you and often tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things even to himself. Paul is saying, it's just to catch these three things. Paul says, have this mind. Let's all think this way. Push forward. Secondly, find a godly example to follow. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Somewhere around you is a godly example. Also around you are ungodly examples. Stop following them. It seems that the ungodly examples are louder than the godly examples. So don't be afraid to say, I'm not listening to you. Find a godly example that you can be honest and genuine with. And thirdly, he reminds us that we're looking for the Lord's return. That's our ultimate hope, to see the Lord and to be like the Lord. 
In closing, worship team, you can come up. I love the scripture in 1 John, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's stand together. My prayer is for you and for how God will work in Albany. What is the work that God wants to do first in your life? To deliver you, to unfreeze you, to move you forward, to give you hope instead of fear, to make it about him instead of about people that may have let you down. What does God want to do in your life? And secondly, what does God want to do in your city? And it's not because we're going to go make something happen. We're going to be so exciting that this is the, the hot place to be. We just want to be a place that those who are thirsty know they can come to get a drink of living water. No hype, no promotion, no big marketing campaign. Just you saying, come and see what the Lord has done in our lives. People who love the Lord, that's exciting. And that's the very thing people are out there are looking for.